Hello and welcome to Alinklater's podcast on payments regulation. Every month we will get together to discuss the latest developments in law and regulation, which are relevant to those of you working in the payments industry and to anyone else generally interested in payments law. I'm joined today by a couple of our payments experts, Jean Price. Hello. And Paul Harris. Hello. We're recording this at the end of January 2020, so there is really only one place to start, and that is Brexit. Paul, where are we now and what happens next? Hello, thank you, Simon. Yes, so um, earlier on in January, um, the EU withdrawal agreement bill um, actually passed through the House of Commons without any real fanfare. And if we think back to all of the uh, machinations that we had in Parliament in 2019 and the days where there were several votes for it in one day to be passed and it, it, it always failed, actually it wasn't even a, a huge news item earlier in January when it passed. What it will fundamentally do is allow the, the treaty, the international treaty between the European Union and the UK to be ratified into UK law and will allow the UK government to take a number of steps in implementing Brexit, one of which will be to actually amend other laws that other, you know, otherwise reference um, the European Union. Um, it will also allow the UK government to repeal the European Communities Act 1972 um, and to take a number of other steps. But actually, it's the first legal step in being able to change the law. So what happens uh, at the end of January when we actually leave the EU? So from a practical perspective, and certainly for payment services firms and e-money firms, nothing really will change until the 31st of December, um, in that whilst from a technical legal perspective we will have left the European Union, we still have a transitional period up until the end of the calendar year in 2020 where everything will stay the same. And during that period, from the beginning of February to the end of December, that's the period that the UK government and the European Union have got to thrash out a, a much longer term deal that will then determine the long term relationship between the UK and the European Union. And in, I suppose specifically for payment services and e-money providers, that's where we'll get um, the answer as to how UK firms on a longer term basis can provide payment services potentially into the European Union and how European economic area-based firms potentially continue to provide payment services and e-money services into the UK. And I've heard a lot of talk about equivalence. Is that going to be um, something that's going to be of interest to payments firms? So whilst there may be other financial services, pan-European legislation, where there's some sort of mutual recognition or equivalence type provisions, both under the money directive and the payment services directive, there's no concept of equivalence at all or of mutual recognition. The UK will simply be a third country jurisdiction and so therefore any ability for UK businesses to provide payment services into the European Union will be based on these political negotiations that we have in the rest of 2020. So then looking ahead to end of December, what, what do you think the impact is going to be for those cross-border payments between the UK and the EU? Yeah, so I suppose there are two main areas that firms will be focusing on. One is, from a regulatory perspective, how can we still provide services on a cross-border basis, either by having a branch or from our base in the UK? And how can EA-based firms continue to provide services into the UK? And then separately, how can we technically actually provide our, actually transmit money on a cross-border basis out of the UK and into the European Union? And I suppose taking that first point, for, for UK firms who want to provide services into the uh, EEA, there are no transitional arrangements past the 31st of December. 
and individually member states have been looking at potential no-deal Brexit transitional arrangements for when the, the transitional period ends. Very few of them, if any, have really focused on payment services. They've really focused on other areas of financial services in order for, to maintain financial stability. So it really is a big kind of un unknown as to what UK firms can do in Europe, short of getting a new entity authorised somewhere in the European Union in the meantime. I suppose in terms of incoming firms, the FCA have, have put in place the temporary permissions regime, which if you provided you try to enter it by a certain date, would allow you up to three years of being able to continue to provide services into the UK based on your passport that you had in place as at the time in which you entered the temporary permissions regime. Um, and depending on when you are called to actually get a, a full-time permanent authorisation within that three-year, up to three-year period, you then have that time to decide whether you do actually want to apply for a full permanent authorisation or whether you just want to stop providing services into the UK. So that's relevant for EU firms at the moment who are passporting those services into, into the UK and uh, under this temporary permissions regime they'll, they'll be given, is it a landing slot, is that what it's called, where they can then um, during that period apply for authorisation? Yeah, I think that's the case. There's some sort of interesting analogies that we can draw from when um, all the consumer credit firms switched across from the OFT to the FCA. Um, in that case, what happened was you had to get your interim permissions in and then you were given a landing slot of, I think it was four weeks. Now, interestingly, in relation to consumer credit, what the um, FCA did first was pick off the more complex um, firms. So it looked at things like the banks who would had would have run typically virtually all of the permissions and looked at those and used those as the, their training ground. Um, we're seeing sort of it may be the opposite here where the FCA may be bearing the scars of doing that the first time round, picks off the easier firms and then moves up the complexities it goes through. Um, we saw actually some of them took quite some time, but what was critical was that you'd made your application for your interim permissions because then once you'd got that, you could continue your business until such time as you had to put your full authorisation in. If, on the other hand, you did not get it in within your window, you were unregulated at the end of that. We saw a bit of a mad scrabble. So I'm just wondering whether we should be gearing ourselves up for that in, in fairly short order, in fact, now. I think the key message there is if you are entering the temporary permissions regime, make sure you understand what the deadlines are for your particular business um, to do whatever the FCA directs you to do, because provided you meet those deadlines, you'll have the fullest amount possible in terms of time in order to rely on your temporary permission and or to get your authorisation through to continue to provide services. And then finally, looking ahead to the end of December when the transition period ends, uh, I think that's the point at which we take uh, existing EU law, bring them into UK law and make some changes to it. Is that going to present any problems or, or issues? We've looked at this um, and what's quite interesting is in payment services, crayoning out EEA and writing in UK actually has a number of knock-on consequences. It's not as simple as that when you're dealing with services that are by their very nature cross-border. So the prime example for this is money remittance. So one of the, um, the big goals or achievements of PSD2 was the fact that 
if you or I are sending money to a different country, we can only be charged the same fee, no matter how we enter into that transaction. So credit cards, debit cards, direct from bank account, those should all be charged at the same fee. And that was quite a big win. What we see now is that if you just strike out EEA, we will be treating the, um, the EEA as a third country. So whereas now it's relatively cheap to send money because of this level playing field, once the rules come in as currently drafted, it seems that a UK provider, assuming it is allowed to provide services into the, into the EEA, can charge the same to go to the EEA as, for example, it would do to the States or Nigeria at the moment. So we could see an uptick in the fees we are charged as UK residents to send money out of the country. And I can't see that there was any policy decision that that should be the case. And that's just one area that, that we've been looking at for clients. I mean, there are many number of areas that until people really sit down with the amended legislation and really work out what it means for their businesses, it's hard to determine whether changes that are not meant to be policy changes actually result in practical differences as to how payment services firms operate their businesses going forward. Great. Thank you very much. So no change in the short term, perhaps, but potential for divergence in the future. And no doubt we'll come back to that in a future episode. Moving on to our second topic, uh, Jean, I see you have a letter in front of you from uh, the FCA. Uh, what does that talk about? So, well, this was a quite late Christmas present to the um, the telecoms industry, in fact, from the Payment Services Directive, came out on the, um, the 23rd of December, which I'm sure delighted most. Um, it's interesting, we are now just gone past the second birthday of the implementation of PSD2, and yet the FCA is now choosing to turn its sights to um, telecoms providers who are providing payment services. Now, it may not automatically be obvious to everyone why telecoms providers have got anything at all to do with um, payment services. Um, and I think there are two reasons for that. Firstly, it didn't come onto the radar under PSD1 because there was a pretty broad exemption for um, payment transactions that were um, done by means of telecoms or IT devices. Payment services too change that and it actually reduced that significantly down to micro payments for digital content and voice-based services. So this applies, for example, where you use your phone or mobile device to purchase content, which you then pay for through your phone bill. So if you phone up to vote on Strictly or X Factor, um, or if you, um, you know, phone a premium rate service for whatever reason. I mean, clearly, I only ever do that to get the weather forecast. Um, if it's charged to your phone bill, that is a payment service. It's interesting, if you look on the um, Phone Paid Services Authority's website, and that's the UK regulator for um, contents that charge through phone bills, it says specifically on its website, your phone is billed regularly, so it's a payment account in its own right. Think of it like a bank account or credit card. Interestingly, it has a little invitation to tweet next to that, so it's obviously trying to get the message out. But the um, limitation is really to ensure that people don't rack up huge amounts of phone bills unless it's offered in a way that's fully compliant with the PSRs. And does this apply to everyone? There is actually an exemption. Um, which is called the electronic communications exemption, which for electronic communications providers, who I suppose colloquially we would just call telecoms providers, um, in relation to certain 
charges that, as Gene said, you can add to your bill, such as content that you download that you can then use on your actual mobile device, um, donations that you make to charity via text, for example, um, calling premium rate numbers where the premium rate provider is a third party, those sorts of um, additional charges, um, provided no single charge is more than £40. And cumulatively, within a month, none of those charges add up to more than £240. As a telecoms provider, you can. there is an exemption under the payment services regulations in the UK for you not to have to uh, be authorised, registered to provide payment services. Um, interestingly, um, it's really the only exemption or exclusion that we're kind of aware of where you can't just rely on it as a matter of fact. You actually have to register with the FCA to tell them that you're relying on this exemption. Um, and the FCA on their website have actually got directions as to how you go about doing that. And so maybe that brings us back to the letter then. Is that the, the subject of what the FCA is talking about? It is, but just before the letter, I'd go back on what Paul is saying. It's, it is an interesting exemption, this one. Um, and furthermore, it doesn't stop just when you've registered. There is an ongoing obligation on the firms who are relying on this to produce an annual auditor's opinion, which confirms that they've actually stayed within the 40 and 200 and £40 limits and those are separate so if you have one call that goes above £50 you've blown your exclusion cover similarly if you go over 240 but it's made of up of an, a number of, of payments under £40 you've blown it so it is really important that that comes in and I say the annual auditor's opinion is also got to be testifying that you stayed within it and is going to be another cost to be borne by the telecoms providers to enable them to continue using that exclusion. And one interesting addition to that that doesn't seem to have had any sort of clarification from the regulator is let's say you're a large telecoms provider with 5 million customers, but in a particular month, for whatever reason, 10 customers have breached the £40 limit, gone up to £50. Whether that would be sufficient for the regulator to deem that you have not been complying with the parameters of that exemption or whether actually they will take a pragmatic view and realise that actually in just very few isolated cases you've gone beyond the parameters but for the vast majority of your customers you are very much sticking to it. Yeah, although the letter seems to be worded quite, quite um, tightly on that, as you say, where they turn their sites will be interesting. Um, and so looking at that, it's, you've got to notify the FCA. Because um, I have nothing better to do at a weekend, I actually went for a stroll around the FCA register. And it actually prevents, presents a very mixed picture at the moment. So for example, um, Virgin Media and BT have both registered to use the exemption. But the um, position is significantly less clear for a number of other you know, household name telecom providers. As we say, this has clearly caught the FCA's eye. It issued this um, letter just before Christmas. And it reminded providers that if they're relying on the exemption, that they need to register. And if they're not relying on the exemption, they need to apply for authorisation. So just to be clear, no one is saying that you can't provide premium rate services or charge to bill services which are over £40 or over £240. All it's saying is that if you do choose to do that, then you have to do it in a way that complies with the payment services regulations and you need to be authorised as a payment service provider. Um, so just, just to sort of round up, talking to some providers, the biggest challenge here 
is um, the, the technology and how you actually manage this. Because if you imagine from you sitting in your, your house and ringing up to get your, um, your weather forecast, it goes up through a number of providers until you get to the meteorological office. And then there's a number of providers involved in then getting that to appear on your bill. So it's got to go up the whole, the whole value chain. Um, and that seems to be problematic in how you actually deal with this because there are a number of options if you want to to use the exemption I mean the first one is you have the technology that presumably beeps when you are getting near to 40 pounds or 240 pounds and reminds you and then cuts you off um, not a great customer experience um, but one way of managing the risk the other one is at the other end of the spectrum, if you like, is whether bearing in mind the costs of full compliance with the PSRs or putting in a, a, an operational build, how many calls do you actually have that would carry you over that? And is it actually more commercially pragmatic to, to actually cap, bear the cost, if you like, but cap out customers' bills? Of course, that's massively open to abuse if you decide to do that and, and, and your customers realise you are going to do that. It is an interesting one for the telecoms provider. So they've been very low down, but clearly this is something the FCA is looking at and will provide some interesting challenges going forwards. And finally, we are very excited to bring you a brand new feature, which we're calling Just In Case You Missed It. This is, this is very exciting. Everyone's very excited in the room. So every month, one of us will pick out a bit of news which may have flown under the radar and tell you what you need to know in just 30 seconds. This month, I'm the one stepping up to the plate. Paul is ready with a big clock in front of him. So here we go. Just in case you missed it, the EU Whistleblowing Directive. This directive was made law at the end of last year and is all about strengthening protection for people raising concerns about wrongdoing in their organisation. It requires companies with more than 50 employees to create reporting channels for whistleblowers and introduces safeguards to protect them. Breaches relating to financial services are in scope of the directive, which for a lot of payment institutions may be the first time that they are required to put these protections in place. EU member states must write the rules into their national law by the end of 2021, although some provisions won't apply for a couple of years after that. Phew. <laughs> that rounds off our discussion for today. Do get in touch with us if you have any questions or if you would like to suggest topics you would like us to cover in future episodes. You can tweet us at linklaterstech or email us at fintech.podcast.linklaters.com. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>